0: Uh, let's pray. Uh, Father, I thank you for all you're doing among us here at Calvary Chapel of Sarasota in this part of the church that is all over the world. And I thank you for your word. I thank you for the book of Daniel. And I thank you for the picture of Daniel. <clears throat> but most of all, for the picture of you, our God, uh, Yahweh, the Lord of all the earth. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, now, uh, in my previous sermons on Daniel, uh, I've called the sermon on this chapter uh, Babylon's Last Supper. That would make some sense. And uh, one time I called it From Gold to Silver. And those of you that know the book of Daniel, and you'll find out a little bit more about that anyhow in a moment, you know what that's about. It's a big statue. You remember that. And this time... I'm going to call it the finger of God. So the finger of God. Now Daniel chapter 4, chapter 5, and chapter 6 are really one story lived out over time. Three kings, absolute rulers, starting with Nebuchadnezzar, followed by Belshazzar, and finally Darius, who we'll discover next time three rulers who had to deal with Yahweh, the one and only God, in three different ways. Nebuchadnezzar, as we learned last week, acknowledged God eventually, while Belshazzar challenged God. That's what we're talking about tonight. And next time we'll witness how Darius handles his confrontation with God. All three make it clear that God is in charge of all rulers, regardless of their flavor. But in the meantime, one of the great issues regarding the book of Daniel is its authenticity. Now, in previous sermons, I've spent way too much time on this, so I'm just going to spend a little bit, and you'll see why here. Because for me, the history of doubt by scholars regarding the authenticity of Daniel is an encouragement to my faith. Until the mid-1800s, doubters assailed this particular story of King Belshazzar as being made up by the writer of Daniel, whoever that was. And even though Josephus, and those of you who are experienced Christians, you know about Josephus, a Jewish historian, even though Josephus wrote about Belshazzar, the doubters point out that his only source was the book of Daniel. And no other historical document backed him up. So obviously, the Bible is not considered an historical source. Every uh, now these are all uh, these are all well. We'll say sometimes in in brackets, Christian writers of commentaries. Every other record available says that Nabonidus ruled. At the end of Babylon and not Belshazzar. But since the late 1800s, archaeologists have found almost 40 texts dating from the first to 14th year of Nabonidus, attesting to the existence of Belshazzar, or Belshazzar, who was both the son of and co ruler with Nabonidus. Nabonidus reigned for 17 years. But for 14 of those years, he resided in a place in Arabia called Temas, some considerable distance from Babylon. He worshiped a different small g god than the Babylonians, so while he was away, his son reigned to catastrophe. Others have pointed out that there's a mistake in the story because it says that Nebuchadnezzar was Belshazzar's father, And he clearly wasn't. Well, there are at least a dozen meanings for father in Aramaic or Hebrew. And also because of that particular culture. Jesus, for instance, was called the son of David, meaning he was a descendant of David. Belshazzar was called the son of Nebuchadnezzar, meaning the descendant or even possibly the ascendant one to the throne. Both would use the word that we would translate into English as son. Now, for historical context, Nabonidus had left Belshazzar in charge when it was obvious the Persians were about to attack the city. But the Babylonian army suffered a crushing defeat at the hands of the Persians, and Nabonidus had fled. So That's why Belshazzar was having this party. Belshazzar was a weak leader, and the party we will read of in a minute was his attempt to drown his fears in drunken bravado. It's a weakness of the faithless to ignore reality by trying to find strength in sex or alcohol or drugs. Nevertheless, the finger of God intervenes And exposes the fear of this weak and sacrilegious king named Belshazzar. So look in your Bibles at the first verse. It says this. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. Uh, Now, this is a, a, a picture of the king leading the drinking, which wasn't the right way to do it, but that's the way he was doing it. And it's so worded so that we can imagine a very drunken party and it included women, which was not normal for that kind of a party at this time. And the reason it included women, well, we need no further explanation. But why was this party going on? Because the Persian army was surrounding Babylon and we talked last week about how huge Babylon is and how impregnable it seems to be. And so, why was he having a party while the Persian army was so-called, you know, they were seizing uh, Babylon? They were everywhere around the walls. Well, the city and it was well-equipped with food and water. The Euphrates River ran right through Babylon, and the people could last 20 years without anyone leaving its protective walls. So Belshazzar was living in denial of reality, and this party was, in a sense, his coronation. Now, there is nothing like a few drinks mixed with the power and authority of a ruler to make a dictator king think that he was invisible. (sighs) Women aren't supposed to talk out in the... (laughs) Oh, my gosh, it's good to have a good wife. Uh, as I said, he was invincible. <laughs> well, he thought he was. <laughs> gosh. Oh boy. So instead of calling on God <laughs> instead of calling on God uh, for help, he was trusting in the thick walls and abundant provisions to save him. Now history records that the night Babylon finally fell, (laughs) there was a large party going on, and the date was October 12, 539 B.C., about 30 years past the incident we studied last week. That means Daniel was now in his 80s. He was a teenager when we first met him. He's now in his 80s. Now, the number 1,000 here is likely just an estimation of the exact number. There would have been... Uh, many others at this drunken orgy of a party. The room it was held in measured about 9,000 square feet. I mean, that is huge. Uh, Belshazzar would have been on a throne, and he was in charge of everything. So we go to verse 2 now. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, and again, the way it's written, it indicates he was pretty, he was drunk. He gave orders to bring in the gold, the silver goblets, That Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. This was the wine talking as it was considered a sacrilege to bring in the symbols of any religion. So this was a blasphemous act against Yahweh, the God of Israel. In other words... Belshazzar was declaring that the Jewish God, Yahweh, had been defeated by a small g-god or gods of Babylon, and by drinking from these religious symbols, Belshazzar was challenging the God of the Jews, and he would soon regret his prideful actions. So the blasphemy begins, verse 3 and 4. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God, the Jewish God, the God, in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. And as they drank the wine, they praised the God, small g of gold, silver, of bronze, iron, and then wood and stone. Now these goblets have been there for more than fifty years. And Belshazzar would have known that Nebuchadnezzar had humbled himself to the god of these goblets. If Belshazzar had have done his homework, he also would have known that Daniel had interpreted a dream predicting the Persians. Remember the statue? The gold head and then the next uh, down from the gold head was what, what was it? Was it made of gold then Silver. silver. And if Belshazzar had just done his homework, and he should have known all this, he would know that Daniel would interpret the dream, predicting that the Persians were going to defeat the Babylonians. Belshazzar is clearly saying that he will not be defeated even though the Persian army was presently surrounding Babylon. In essence, he was declaring that his small g-gods were more powerful than than Yahweh. Belshazzar wanted the people to have confidence in his leadership backed by the Babylonian gods. Together, they would defeat the enemy outside the city gate. The leader of the Persians outside the gate, that was Cyrus, the king of Persia, was waiting to attack. And Belshazzar knew that the prophet Isaiah, for instance, had recorded in his scrolls these words, Isaiah 45, one. This is what the Lord says to his anointed Cyrus. I find that fascinating. Cyrus was God's anointed. Cyrus didn't know it, but he was. Whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armor to open doors before him so that the gates will not be shut. Now, this is fascinating because it was written 150 years before Cyrus, the Persian king, conquered Babylon. It was written before Cyrus was born. So Belshazzar was challenging the prophecies. He was shaking his fist at Yahweh. This is certainly the case today as a large part of our American population are aware that the Bible says Jesus is coming again as a judge. I mean, it's mentioned in movies in different ways, TV programs, secular literature, and it's common in the news to describe a weather incident as like Armageddon, a picture of Jesus' final coming. Nevertheless, we clean up the hurricane and tornado mess and continue to kill babies in the womb and live as if there were no future judgment. Our gods of prosperity and bootstrap perseverance mean more to us than he who so loved the world that he sent a son who died for the world and is coming again. Another important point regarding verse 4, I think you probably noticed it, but did you notice the description of the metals is in the same order of the statue that Daniel interpreted as predicting the future, gold, silver, bronze, and iron. Our culture still uses biblical phrases without any longer realizing where they come from. And they're getting less common in hearing them, but especially an old guy like me, I've heard all of these ones through my life. Here's a, just a sh- very short list of uh, phrases that are used still in our language uh, that come from the Bible. Uh, first phrase, a cross to bear. Second phrase, a house divided against itself. A uh, third one, uh, a labor of love or signs of the times, or a two-edged sword, or reap what you sow, or go the extra mile, or the twinkling of an eye. It reminds me of the rapture of the church. But the best known is the phrase, the handwriting on the wall. And I can remember uh, in my stockbroker days, we'd be working, and we'd be looking at all of our charts and trying to figure out where the investments are going to go, and I can, I can still hear different uh, guys they're saying, ah, the handwriting's on the wall. The Fed's going to rise the rate again. This is going to happen. That's going to happen. And it was very common to use that. I don't hear it as much today. But, of course, it comes from the book of Daniel. Now, I have chosen not to make another list, but if Belshazzar had read the easily available writings of Jeremiah the prophet, or in that culture, if he had listened to those who knew what Jeremiah had long predicted... And remember, there were many Jews in captivity in Babylon at this time. And if he had listened to Jeremiah's prophecies, he would have known exactly what the surrounding Persian army was about to do. But he did not listen to God's word. Instead, he lived his life according to his own selfish, prideful desires. Today, the Bible is readily available to everyone. No one needs CNN or Fox or any other news channel to explain what is happening today. The Bible clearly outlines all of history. Uh, We'll see that especially as we get into from chapter 7, 8, 9 in in Daniel. It's it's the most amazing prophecies, I think, in the Bible. Chapter 11 is absolutely the mind-blower. So how foolish to not know what the Bible says. How foolish to the, the, the result is, in not knowing, is that as we progress toward the end of the end times without knowledge of the Bible, God's word will become increasingly fearful as Belshazzar is about to discover. So now verse 5, one of my favorite words in the Bible, first word, verse 5, suddenly, and I've said it often, you know, it's one of the greatest studies to do, it just in the English Bible, is to look up all the words suddenly and See what you discover. it's quite a lesson to learn as you go through the Bible with it. Suddenly, there's this big 9, thousand square foot hall is packed full and all kinds of things that are unspeakable are happening. and suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand, they would have brought this lampstand in from it was already come in, it was the the Jewish lampstand, near the lampstand in the royal palace, and the king watched the hand as it wrote. And his face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. Now, if it is possible to become completely sober from a great shock... (laughs) That would have been the case here. The room went from loud revelry to complete silence immediately. Immediately. Everyone's eyes were glued on the hand which was writing on the wall. In 1899, archaeologists discovered what is believed to be this specific room. And the walls were all whitewashed and the room was very large, as I've already Uh, pointed out, and what they found was an exceptionally beautiful throne room with tiles of many animals representing their various gods around the room. The throne was placed so that Belshazzar would have looked straight up above his head and saw a hand with fingers writing on the wall. Now, this was not a vision. This was a miracle from God himself. The description in these Verses picture someone who is frightened to the point of panic, so much so as legs gave out on him. Everyone in the room would have seen the same thing and read the words. And I use the word on purpose, deathly silence, was the immediate response in the face of such a miracle. Now, in verse 7, you'll see it says, The king summoned. Now, this is very important. Uh, the word summoned in verse 7 is not the best translation. The word shout, or even better, the word used in the Tyndall Living Bible, the paraphrased Bible, is even better. The word screamed fits the circumstance in the language. And don't think of a single scream. It, it, it's written grammatically that he kept screaming for his advisors to come. So it tells us in verse 7, the king was shouting, screaming out for the enchanters, the astrologers, and the diviners. You could just imagine him. He's absolutely terrified. And he said, get in here. They weren't there, obviously. And <clears throat> it was, they started coming in. And then he said to these, I can almost not say it because it's, uh, it's so, so you just need to be sarcastic, I think. Then he said to these wise men of Babylon, We've already met them before. Whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he'll be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Now, purple represents royalty. Gold represents authority. I mean, this was a major reward of power, position, and even riches. And then, verse 8, all the king's wise men, uh, it, it actually reads in the grammar, then all the king's wise men kept coming in. They're all coming in. But they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. They're all talking to each other. You can just imagine. It. Everybody's looking at them. The king's looking at them. He's terribly frightened, and he's watching, and they're talking, and all of that. And he, they couldn't come to any kind of an agreement. And, of course, they would be very much afraid because if they were wrong, the king would probably have them all killed. So uh, they, they didn't know what to do. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified and his face grew more paled and his nobles were baffled. Now, everyone there would have understood the literal meaning of the words, but not the message. It was a riddle, in a sense. The king's advisors would not be able to put the words into the context of God's plan for Babylon. But Daniel would be doing so soon enough. So we we face the same problem today when talking to someone concerning what the Bible says about salvation. I remember as a new Christian being totally perplexed when I would carefully present the gospel with the same skill i close my sales presentations and yet I receive more no's from my gospel presentations than my sales calls. Now, we're learning the reason for this uh, during the weekend sermons of 1 Corinthians. Without the revealing power of the Holy Spirit, anyone can read the Bible but not understand what the words really mean. Uh, this verse uh, that you'll recognize right away is appearing in the sermons lately with regularity. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The person without the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. Now, I know it's a New Testament verse, but it's always been that way. God has always revealed Himself through the power of the Spirit. And so the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness, and I always underline it, and cannot, totally cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit, and not through intellect or education or because of an expert presentation. We're all thrown on the mercy of God for salvation and for witness. Even though everyone in that room could read the words literally, no one in that room understood what they meant. Only a truly spiritual person could interpret the meaning. Well, now we have almost like a new scene happening. The queen mother, now this is not Belshazzar's wife, they were, his wives were at the party, but Nebuchadnezzar's wife, she lived to be 104 years old, and uh, uh, she wasn't at the party, she didn't think much of Belshazzar anyhow, and she arrives, you would have heard all of the things going on, probably somebody went and ran and told her too, and she arrives with a solution. So here we are with verse 10. So the queen, like the queen mother here, the queen hearing the voices of the king and his nobles came into the banquet hall. The first thing she said was, may the king live forever. Well, that was something everybody would say that wanted to come in front of the king. It was dangerous in that culture to come in front of a king without permission, but she didn't care. She came in, but she still said, it was part of the culture, may the king live forever. And then she said, don't be alarmed. And don't look so pale. I mean, she was putting Belshazzar in this place. There is a man, verse 11, in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods. It's a small S and a small G. She didn't uh, have the same experience as her husband had, but she understood what had happened. So there's a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. And in the time of your father... He was found to have insight, this is Daniel she's talking about, and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods, small g. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. So obviously he was at least semi-retired now. And verse 12, he did this because Daniel whom the king called Beldeshazzar was found to have a keen ruah. That's the, the Hebrew word, uh, a keen mind, it says in my translation. Uh, ruah is the word for spirit. It's talking about he had he had understanding. He had a spiritual, he was a spiritual man. And so he had a keen mind, ruah, and knowledge and understanding and also the ability to interpret Dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. Now, it had been 20 years plus since Nebuchadnezzar died, and it was normal for the next ruler to dismiss many office bearers like our presidents do when they get elected. So Daniel, who is now in his 80s, has been semi-retired and probably not known personally by Belshazzar. Belshazzar. But it is obvious the queen knows him and had been around and witnessed Daniel's abilities years before. I also want to point out that at 80 years old, Daniel had not lost his faith or his courage or his vitality. He still was living his life to the end. An aside here, personal prejudice. (laughs) Some of us are getting older. I've I've read a book recently about the different, I'm at what they call an older old. And I'm looking at somebody right now, it's an older old too. And I I will look away from you over, there's another older old. But, uh, (laughs) and so some of us are getting older. Uh, let this picture of Daniel disabuse us of the idea God doesn't still have a plan for the chronological aged. He was no longer the young Daniel of chapter 1 or the dynamic middle-aged Daniel of chapter 4, but instead the exciting, dynamic, uncompromising, fearless Daniel of old age. So, verse 13, Daniel was brought before the king. This had to be a... An amazing, you know, I always like to imagine this as a movie. Somebody had to go get him. <laughs> he wasn't there. He wasn't at their party. He would never have been at a party like that. And uh, so somebody had to go get him. The king's still totally frightened. The queen mother's there. All the people are looking around. The writings, handwriting's on the wall. <laughs> and, uh, and so there's this tension building. And Daniel's brought before the king, and the king said to him, now li- listen to this, are you Daniel? One of the exiles, my father, the king, brought from Judah. I have heard, in other words, I don't really, I'm pretty skeptical if that means anything, but I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you, and they, you have inside intelligence and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now, I've heard. And I think he's trying to intimidate him. He's looking right at him. I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you'll be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck and you'll be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. And so, as I said, I think the king mentions Daniel's exile and Jewishness to try to intimidate him. He's really saying, Daniel, I'm the king, you're not. Did you notice that Belshazzar used the name Daniel (laughs) and not Bildeshazzar, the name given Daniel by Nebuchadnezzar? But Daniel wasn't intimidated. An 80-year-old man before a young, powerful king expressing no fear. That had to unnerve the king. Then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself, and give rewards to someone else. It wasn't going to be a quid pro quo thing, like, okay, if you give me that, I'll give you this. No, he he couldn't have cared less. Daniel wants the king to know he has no need of anything that the king has to offer. What he is about to do has nothing to do with reward. Daniel is saying, king, you can purchase favor, You, you can't purchase favor with my God who you're blaspheming. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Now, in this volatile situation, Daniel never loses his cool and still respects the king's position. It's the one thing about Daniel, especially in our times that we're in right now that I'm really impressed with and I'm I'm trying, I've been reading a lot of what Paul says about well, politicians and leadership and all that. We're to pray for them. We're to respect them. We're all of that kind of thing. Daniel, to me, is one of the best examples of how we should be living in the culture we're in right now. We'd like to see a lot of things change, of course. So we need to pray. But we need also to live as Christians so that there can be a body of people uh, throughout our country that are totally different because of Jesus and because of the Spirit who is in us. In verse 18, Daniel says, Your Majesty, the Most High God, not one of the Babylonian gods, gave your father, Nebuchadnezzar, sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. And because of the high position that he, God, gave him, Nebuchadnezzar, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those who wanted to spare, he spared. Those who wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. So Daniel was saying here that compared to Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar was an amateur, not worthy of comparison. Verse 20. But when his heart became arrogant, Nebuchadnezzar's heart, and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. Now, there's obviously a double message there. And by the way, pride didn't harden Nebuchadnezzar's heart. Pride was the result of Nebuchadnezzar hardening his own heart by thinking he was in charge rather than Yahweh. I pushed too many forward here. I'm lost. Here I am back. Pride has its consequences. Here's the consequences. If you know this story, most of you who were here last week or know chapter four, he was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys. This is all because of his pride that we studied last week and ate grass like the ox. Remember, he's talking to Belshazzar. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the most high God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. Uh, that includes Russia. That includes America. That includes Venezuela. That includes Cuba. That includes Haiti. That includes Every country in the world, God's in charge. This is Daniel's way of saying that God humiliated Nebuchadnezzar until he agreed with God's assessment of his life. It's so I just love reading that because that way, because I mean, it's never too late to give in to God. I'm kind of assuming that everyone here tonight that's sitting here, I don't know about online, of course, obviously, but uh, that you're all believers. But to me, it's incredibly comforting to know that no matter how bad someone was, no matter where they come from, there's nothing that takes that out of their life until they finally die, of course. So Nebuchadnezzar had dreams from God that Daniel interpreted for him. Especially, as we studied last week, the dream of him becoming animal-like for seven years until he worshipped God. But now, Belshazzar has had a miracle of God's intervention that frightened him close to death. So Daniel is showing a picture to Belshazzar of just how much pride that he is demonstrating and how much danger he is in because of the use of the goblets from Yahweh's temple. So now watch the courage of this old man. Verse 22. But you, Belshazzar, he has to be looking him in the eye. His son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines drank wine from them. You praise the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hands your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. Now, history records for us that Belshazzar was part of the administration when Nebuchadnezzar turned to God, yet Belshazzar never did. Turn to God. Belshazzar would be thinking that he held Daniel's life in his hands, but instead Daniel's God holds all life in his hand. I've quoted the book of Job a lot going through Daniel. Job chapter 12, verse 10. In his, God's hand, is the life of every creature and the breath of all mankind. If you're just to spend some time meditating on that verse... It's impossible to, I mean, it's just, it's impossible, but it's true. This was a very brave speech. Clearly old age had not softened Daniel. He was still the Daniel who interpreted the original dream and then warned the absolute human ruler of the world who was able to take his life at a whim. If God should give long life, then we must become three things if he gives us long life. And the the longer uh, we live, the more this should be apparent. Number one, we should be stronger spiritually. Growing spiritually is largely up to us individually. We're going to learn that on Sunday. Apostle Paul made that very, very clear. And there's never, we're never going to hit perfection, so there's always room to grow. Secondly, we need to be kinder practically. I'm going to talk about the fruit of the Spirit on Sunday also. Kinder practically. Younger people in the church should look at us older olds and say, wow, when I get that age, I bet you all have that kind of patience and kindness. And that's the third thing. We must have more patience than we did in our youth. Very important. Because as we grow old, before we go to heaven, if we do have the privilege of living a lot of years, we uh, owe it to those younger to show what God is really like, especially when uh, our uh, bodies start to betray us and and our minds say invisible instead of invincible and that kind of thing. (laughs) And most of all, we should be less and less attracted to the world's temptations of power and wealth and position as we near our new address in heaven. If we harden our hearts toward the things of God, it's only a short time before we become self-centered and the disease of pride destroys our lives. If we think we are something, we're nothing, that's called pride. It's only a matter of time before we harden our hearts. Romans 12:3 had a huge impact on my early life when I first became a Christian. Uh, Paul writes, "For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you Christians, do not think of yourself more highly." Than you ought. I can remember clearly, I was memorizing part of that part of Romans, and I can remember thinking about it do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. God has given us a certain amount of faith, He's given us certain gifts, certain abilities, and we're to be good stewards of those, and we're to do that for the sake of others. You see, life's not about me. We all need to make that a certainty in our lives and get over ourselves and serve God and others, considering others more than ourselves. I love the book of Philippians. We're going to be talking about that. John is going to do a thing on Philippians 4 at the steak dinner, man, on Saturday night. Uh, Don't be selfish, Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Don't try to impress others. Boy, that's hard not to do sometimes. Um, I'm not thinking of me. I'm thinking of... <laughs> but, you know, I, I use the illustration too often, but, you know, we have our home fellowship, and, and I participate just the same as everybody else. Oh, I did this, this, and this. And I did this, this, and this. Oh, yeah, I did this, this, and this. Oh, you think that's something. I did this, this, and this. And then well, I go to bed and think, you know, oh, boy, I blew it again. So Nebuchadnezzar's life was enough witness to condemn Belshazzar for all eternity. Even with clear evidence before him, Belshazzar chose to worship man-made objects as gods, as idols, that could do nothing for him. We have an expression in English that comes from Daniel's account here. The expression is, your days are numbered. And of course, we've already talked about the one, the handwriting on the wall. Here in Daniel, they are expressions of the judgment of God. So, verse 25 this is the inscription that was written Many, many, tekel, parson. This is written in such a way as to say God has desi- decided irreversibly. That's why there's many, many, why that, that word's twice is repeated. It's irreversibly. This is going to happen. So, here's Daniel. Here is what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. It takes a lot of bravery to stand in front of an absolute monarch like that and say that. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales. All of the words have something to do with weight. You have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. And then, Perez, it's it's the plural of parson, Perez. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And Perez sounds like the word Persian and, and is no doubt used to remind Belshazzar that the Persians outside the gates will eventually take over and defeat Babylon completely. It is actually possible to translate the words numbered, numbered, weighted, and divided. Now, there's more. Uh, The word tekel in verse 27, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. One commentator by the name of Young says, Belshazzar was lacking, deficient in moral worth. There's much more that can be done in commenting on these words, but the message is, don't mess with Yahweh. You'll always lose. The message is, Belshazzar, for you, it's over. Now, I find the next sentence amazing. I would have expected Belshazzar to do the equivalent of the fiery furnace or the lion's den we'll look at next time, certainly after what this 80-year-old man has just told him. I can't imagine a reward. But verse 29, then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel closed in purple. Man, he's just, Daniel just told him, you're done, king. And he says, uh, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Uh, How embarrassing, he really couldn't have cared less. Daniel took the reward because it no longer influences his interpretation, nor is it of any value after what Daniel has just told the king what will happen to him. And then the last two verses, verse 30, that very night, that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. And Darius the Mede took over, literally has received the kingdom. I like the word received because it was given to him by God, ultimately. The kingdom at the age of 62 years old. So few words to describe the fall of one of the greatest empires in all of human history. It has been... It had been predicted by Isaiah. It had been predicted by Jeremiah. And Daniel predicted it as a teenager. The nabonidus Chronicles dates it as the 16th of the month, Tishri. On our calendar, that would be October 12, 539 B.C., There's much history uh, written about the fall of Babylon. The Persian army blocked the Euphrates River so that soldiers were able to literally wade into the city under the walls and capture it with little trouble. Apparently, most of the important people were drunk, uh, so there was not much resistance. The last verse about Darius probably better belongs to chapter 6. Darius the Mede takes over, and the silver medal on the statue is now in place. How exciting for Daniel. I mean, think of it. As a teenager, he prophesied this would happen and now at 80-some years old, it's happened. If you follow carefully through Daniel, through Daniel's study, and also study the Revelation, we'll do some of that as we go through it. You should be on the edge of your prophetic seat realizing that God did give us an historical pathway to the end. He didn't give us any dates or years, so be careful, but we can see that history is progressing to an end point, and we are part of that history. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 23 and 24. In the New Living Translation, it's really good. He, God, judges the great people of the world and brings them all to nothing. They hardly get started, barely taking root when he blows on them and they wither and the wind carries them off like chaff. I'm just going to close with um, reading from David Jeremiah's uh, novel. Somebody asked me about this earlier tonight and I was showing a picture of it. I don't like you to know about it because then you'd know where I get all my ideas. But um, it's called Agents of Babylon. It's a brilliant book because every chapter... Uh, the first half of the chapter is written like a novel. He takes a little bit of liberty, nothing serious, just really well done. And then the second half gives you like a commentary. And I get a lot of ideas just reading through it. I've read the book a number of times. But I want to read uh, just a quote from John Walvard, and we'll close with this. The downfall of Babylon is, in type, the downfall of the unbelieving world. In many respects, modern civilization is much like ancient Babylon, resplendent with its monuments of architectural triumphs as secure as human hands and ingenuity could make it and yet uh, defenseless against the judgment of God at the proper hour. Contemporary civilization is similar to ancient Babylon, In that, it has much to foster human pride, but little, provident, little to provide human security. Much as Babylon fell on that 16th day of Tishra, October 11 or 12, 539 B.C., as indicated in the Nabonidus Chronicle, so the world will be overtaken by disaster when the day of the Lord comes, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. The disaster of the world, however, and this is what's why I'm reading this, does not overtake the child of God. Daniel survives the purge and emerges triumphant as one of the presidents of the new kingdom in chapter 6. We always end up on the winning side. Father, I just thank you for this incredible book in the midst of all of these 66 books that we get to read and study and learn about and memorize parts of and be encouraged by and warned by. Uh, Father, what a wonderful privilege it is. Thank you for not only sending Jesus, but Jesus, thank you for sending the Holy Spirit to inspire the writers of the scriptures, even from ancient times, and especially in our New Testament, Father, where we learn so much of what the Old Testament really was all about. So thank you for this study, and help us to be encouraged that no matter what the world looks like around us, we really don't need to spend much time thinking about that, Father. Uh, and it's, it's, there's so many people who want to tell us everything that's wrong these days. We all know what's happening. Nevertheless, help us to major in Jesus and in being filled with the Spirit, as we'll learn again on Sunday, and living our lives with joy and therefore having many people asking us for the reason for the hope that is within us. Help us not to be downers but to be joyful people who have confidence in the Spirit filling us, in Jesus saving us, and Father, in you loving us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.